Hi, this is Zach Phillips. First of all, thank you so much for listening. This show is one of the most rewarding things I've done, and all the email and positive feedback has been really encouraging. You might have noticed that we're really late in releasing this episode, and you also might have noticed that the name of the show has changed. These two things are related. I got yelled at for the title and decided it was better to change it than to fight about it. In the beginning of episode one, I tried to convey the reasoning behind this show, the thesis, if you will, but apparently I wasn't explicit enough. So let me be clear. I am deeply invested in Wilmington, Delaware. And of course, I think my investment is sound. I've built a 12-person company here, and I plan on building a few more. I've literally put all my money on Wilmington, and I think you should too. Meanwhile, there's a population of people in Wilmington who aren't doing as well. They're struggling. Their kids are dying. They have no money and very little voice. This show is about them. It's not about those of us who are doing well, who happen to be the only ones who had their feelings hurt by the title. So, one last time, Wilmington is not a scary place. There's nothing to be afraid of. Nothing. In fact, it's this fear that keeps our communities separated, isolated, and makes it super hard to try anything to change that. Okay, I'll shut up now. Back in episode one, Dr. Payne talked about this. I think media in general... um completely exaggerated the context of violence in these neighborhoods. Homicide is a within-group phenomenon. Most people who kill people, right, kill people they know. Most of the violence is what's described as a set tripping. Most of the violence takes, takes place between members in the, in the same set. For those of you who didn't know, like me, set is just a really cool way of saying click or crew. That's where the homicides are taking place at, right? My friend, and then you're my enemy because you maybe took some money from me. You know where my stash is at. You know my secrets. You violated me. I also talked to Corey Wright about this. And one of my, my, my uh, mentors gave an example of who's the safest people in Wilmington? White people. White folks. Oh, absolutely. So you could... I used to... Listen, yeah. I've said that to my friends for years, and my wife, too. You know, when we moved here... And people say, well, I don't feel safe over there. I don't feel this. I was like, first of all, there's 17 reasons why you're perfectly safe <laughs> anywhere you want to you Anywhere. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Because nobody's going to mess with you because as soon as they do, that whole The National Guard will be here tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it sounds wrong to say, but you're perfectly safe as a white person in Wilmington. Now, if you're a white person coming to buy drugs, would maybe you get robbed? Yeah, because you're going into the underworld but even that okay maybe you get robbed yeah okay like okay yeah so somebody took yourself (laughs) sorry but to get murdered in wilmington no if you've been shot in wilmington it's almost certain you're a minority male and it's virtually guaranteed that you're poor while i was making this episode just a few weeks ago another child bradley wingo was killed shot while walking home from howard high school He was 15 years old. And the crazy thing is, the majority of these murders go unsolved. Like, I had a youth tell me. He said, Mr. Corey, how many murders happened in such and such? I said, and back then, that was probably two years ago. I said, I think it was 20-something. He said, how many people got locked up? I said, as far as I know, like four or five. He says, who's winning? From Short Order Production House at Wilmington Station, this is Remaking Murder Town, Episode 3, Tidal Wave.
This show is brought to you with support from the Delaware Center for Justice. So when we left off in episode two, Ricky had just gotten out of Ferris and vowed that he was never going to go back. Went to a baby shower that I was invited to. End up seeing people that you don't, you don't like, but they don't like you for whatever reason. In this case, the person that he didn't like was his brother's girlfriend. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't like her at all. You know, she was just all about the drama. Like, she was filled with drama. She loved drama. She wanted to bring it anywhere she was, it was drama. And that just wasn't, you know, I, my, my brother, I just knew that that wasn't good for him or our family. We had a few altercations where she brought individuals to our home, you know, so that was like a real no-no to me. So when, when I was at the baby shower, she actually, you know, the same mutual friend actually invited her as well. Um, and I seen her over there with her ex-boyfriend, you know, and they were kissing, doing things of that nature. So I'm like, yes. You know, I got some evidence on her. You know, I might have called my brother, tell him he going to break up with her because I know how my brother is and this, this, and that. And I ain't got to never worry about her. And that, now I just handle the whole situation, you know. So that's the way I was looking at it. Like, I was doing good in this situation. Like, we, we getting rid of her, you know. Um, but it didn't go that way. When Ricky told his brother what he saw, his brother got some friends together and Ricky and went back to the baby shower. There was a little confrontation, and then later that night, Ricky and his brothers went out to Ellesmere. We ended up running directly into the people that we were looking for. Like, it was just like, movie-like. And the people they were looking for were armed. We seen the, the, the ex-boyfriend, he had a gun. My brother approached him and they got to fighting, and then once, you know, it became physical, he started shooting at him shooting at my brother, shooting at me. Um, I tried to run and get behind a, um, a tree, and he got hit. And at this time, I, was, I had a championship game the next day. I had a championship game the next day. Ricky got lucky on this one. His injuries weren't life-threatening. But a lot of kids that Isaac Dunn works with at Ferris aren't so lucky. You know, there was one young man I had. Um, I took him to lunch with his father, took him to go cash his check. He picked bought some jeans, bought a T-shirt, pair of sneakers. He called me on Friday night and said, uh, can he go over to his girlfriend's house? He can't get in touch with his P.O. I said, hold on. I called his P.O. His P.O. said he didn't mind. Talked to his mom. His mom said she didn't mind. She's like, I'd rather him over a girl's house than in the streets. Man, I got a phone call Saturday morning said he got shot in the back of the head. That's just one. That's just one story I can tell you. In the first episode, we talked about poverty and the kind of world that kids like Ricky grow up in. In episode two, we talked about getting caught up in the system and being incarcerated. This episode is about violence and gun violence specifically. Don't worry, it doesn't get political at all. What was the first time that you had a gun? First time I had a gun. How old were you? I was at least about 11, 11, 10, 11, 11, 12 years old. So why did you have a gun when you were 11? At any time I had a gun, it was more so for protection against somebody else with a gun. 
You can't bring your fist to a gunfight, period. Regardless of your values, of your principles, and things of that nature, you gotta be, you gotta adapt. Okay, he got a gun, pull it out. Let him know that we got it too. So we 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 either gonna kick this one on one, we gonna fight. Everybody gonna fight it out and get it out their system, you know. Or if y'all wanna shoot it out, then we could do that too. But what is it about guns? Guns is a way out of the physical altercation. We too soft now. You know, back in the day, people fought. We too soft. People don't want to fight now. Now this is cool to have a gun and just shoot. So since it became the cool thing, now everybody's going to ride with it because now, oh, I could just shoot. I ain't even got to fight no more. And people still won't look at me like I'm soft. Okay. But you and your brothers like to fight. If it came down to it, we'd rather fight. But nobody wanted to fight. Everybody had a gun. Everybody wanted a gun. Where do people get guns? Oh, you can get them from anyone. I mean, it's really, um, you know, fiends, you know, crackheads, things of that nature. They're, 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 most of them don't have uh, records. Some of them don't have records at all. You know, they just are addicts. And that's this is where they can get the drug at. If they could get the drug in their neighborhood, then they would. But they can't get it there. So they come down here and get it over here. Okay, you want these drugs? I want that gun. You go get that gun, you give it to me, I give you some drugs, and then you got a gun for a couple hundred dollars. You can find a gun before you can find fruits and vegetables in Wilmington. So, like, how, how many kids have guns? I'm in the community a lot, and you can watch these youth. They look over their shoulder, and for every three steps, he looks to his left. Another three steps, he looks to his right, and he walks again, boom. That's all he do the whole time is just keep looking. And then in their playfulness, because you can see that they're still young, the way they greet each other is to run up and go, gotcha, you were slipping. You just made a the, gun a, gesture. So he'll run up on him and do a gun and say, you were slipping. Like you weren't watching. You wasn't watching your stuff. They're actually pretending they're conditioning they're... each other to stay alert. Here's Isaac Dunn again. So then a significant percentage of them are carrying guns? They feel like they have to have it. You feel like you're in danger when you go home. and you know, Yeah. You know, yeah. I have to have this. You know, well, you're not in a gang. You know, you don't sell any drugs. What you got this for? I need it for protection. And again, you know, that, that heft of that steel, you know, that whole idea of it, you know, of what it can do, the message that it conveys, it, it does something for them. You know, it, it shapes their identity, um, what identity that they have. And the gun is a very powerful tool. You know what I mean? That's what won the, the West. <laughs> you know what I mean? People will clear out. Um, so now you give that power to a 13-year-old boy who's tired of somebody picking on him because his sneakers have run over or, oh, your mom's a crackhead or, you know what I mean? Whatever, just close your eyes and think about all the mean things you ever heard someone say to you as a kid that you felt powerless to stop, but you pull out this little five pound piece of metal and pull the trigger, it stops, pop, and it's over.
when you're in a classroom and you ask the children, I always ask them to first day of class, what do you want? That's my personal. What do y'all want? What do you want? Seven of them raised their hands and said, I just want to live. What do you mean live? Well, when I go home, you know, I want to survive. I want to live. And others like, I want to live because I want to get a job and I want to see my mother do well. So how do you take that when you got a 14-year-old tells you that he, he wants to live? You know, it's, it's hard to receive that. Isaac says this is the most common response he gets. Corey talked about something even a little more disturbing that he hears from the kids. Dying with honor? Yeah. What is that? What do you, what do you mean? I get my face on a t-shirt. Yeah. That's a real thing? That's a real thing. They're going to put teddy bears on the corner and my boy's going to ride for me. One of the things that Corey and Isaac talked about a lot was this desire they had to send some of these kids away. Like I had a young man told me, he was like, I just want to go away and go somewhere. Mind you, his mother and father are incarcerated, uh, so there's no one. He just started crying, and he's just like, I just don't want to be here. He's like, can you just send me somewhere? Can I just go away somewhere? And I was just like, Phew. you know, they can't help that they was born on North Rodney Street. They can't help that. They're trying to survive in this very liminal space, man, trying to figure it out. I think we all are. <clears throat> and then you got to think of kid 13, 14, seeing their friends, like, die right in front of them. And then they still expect to go to school tomorrow. Go see your probation officer or tell who did it. One thing I've thought about a lot while working on this show is just how wild I was when I was a kid. Here's Lisa Minutola and Charlie Copeland from the last episode. Research shows that you have sort of this pattern of offending behavior that peaks around age 14, um, and then it starts to slide off again. And that's when they're, they're at their most, um, their most risky. You've worked with these kids who have gun charges. Like, what are they like? Well, um, and I say this because I have a 14-year-old. They're stupid. <laughs> I don't mean that to be um, disrespectful, but I mean, it's things with my own child sometimes when I go, what? like, my, my son is a very, very, very smart boy. And then sometimes he'll say things and I'm like, what, what planet are you on? And so I find that with the, with the youthful clients too, that even if I have a very smart kid in front of me, some of the choices that they make are just unbelievable. They don't think long-term. Everything is like immediate gratification and, you know, can I get out of here now? Can we be done now? They're kids and they are, you know, your, your child's classmates. Um, you know, they're not, they're not these, you know, horrible miniature adult criminals. That, that's not really most of the kids that we see coming through family court. When do you reach the stage of being able to reason appropriately to where we can judge you with the same criteria that we can judge somebody else. We know that you don't judge an eight-year-old by a, a, an adult standard, but do you judge the 12-year-old, the 16-year-old, the 20-year-old? When, when, when do they cross that Rubicon? And, and I think that is a societal debate, but I, honestly, I think as, as more and more scientific evidence comes along, I think we're going to wind up pushing those dates back 
and having other solutions for poor judgments and things like that, you know, that occur when, when people are younger. I feel like every single emotion I had as a young teenager was amplified from excitement to jealousy to anger and vengeance. Now, I've never been shot. I've never had anyone killed who was really close to me. But I still have this really overdeveloped sense of vengeance. And it was deep when I was in high school. Corey Wright said that the vast majority of shootings in Wilmington have to do with revenge. The CDC is looking at it as a disease because when you think about it, revenge is like a disease because if I do something to person A, person B wants revenge, then my person C is going to want revenge for that. And it just goes back and forth. What is it? Hatfields and McCoys. How long does that feud live? All from one or two, from two guys arguing. One of the reasons it's so important for people like Isaac and Corey to be working with these kids when they get out of Ferris is that they have to check in with them like a lot about how they're how they're dealing with their anger. Like there's some young men that I call almost every morning and sometime at night just to get a feel for where they're at mentally. Like, you know, how you feel today? You know, some of my main questions are, are you safe? Are you okay? You know, you need anything? No, I'm good. You sure? Yeah. It's not at all an exaggeration to say that these check-ins can be the difference between life and death. This brings us back to Ricky, just after he's been shot. It was just like, you know, I, now I'm sitting, now I'm sitting up. I can't play basketball. That's all I was doing, basketball, basketball. That's why I can't play basketball. Now I really felt I'm embarrassed, um, behind. Um, just all those type of different emotions, you know, like I'm not good anymore, people won't like me, things of that nature, you know, dealing with all those type of emotions and that came with it, and I became enraged, like I want to kill him. That whole week I was looking for him. I was out there with my crutches and I had a gun on my back and I was looking for him. I want to kill him. I don't. I, basketball was my way out. He took it away from me. I don't got nothing else to live for no more. So I don't care if I kill him and go to jail for the rest of my life because I can't play basketball no more anyway. And that was my way out. What's that mindset feel like? To be honest with you, it's, it's a dangerous one because, you know, coming up in a neighborhood, that's what they teach you to be, you know, like rough, rigid, you know. So when you when you're, you come across a situation where you're rough and rigid, basically when you bout it, that's what they call it, like you bout it, you know, it's something that you, it kind of make you feel good. Cause you you feel invincible. No matter who you come across, I'm I'm 130 percent, you know, ready for anything, anybody, you know, and and that can feel good at a time. So um, you can overdose.
the conclusion to Ricky's story, next time on Remaking Murder Town. Remaking Murder Town is created and edited by me, Zach Phillips, at Short Order Production House at Wilmington Station, with music by the terrific Jim Guthrie. The show is mixed by Peter Hoops. To find out how you can help, please visit dcjustice.org.